Good morning. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading from 1 Timothy 6 through 10. That's 1 Timothy 6 through 10. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are listening are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good for if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and religiouses for those who will kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slaves, traitors and liars, and and prefers, and for whatever else is contrary to around the doctrine. Good morning, everybody. All right, I'm thankful to have your attention this morning uh, because I know how much competition there is these days to to get our attention. Uh, In our world today, we're constantly being bombarded with messages, and many of those messages come to us in the form of ads. Uh, In fact, in Forbes magazine, Uh, It tells us that most Americans are exposed to somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000 ads every day in one form or another. Uh, Most of these ads are trying to tell us in one way or another that we need to spend our money to make our lives better, right? Um, There's lots of them out there. Sometimes it's just a logo we see somewhere. Sometimes it's a commercial. Uh, But there's a lot of ways we see ads. And I just wanted to look at some of my favorite this morning. Uh, This one's from Toyota. Uh, get the feeling. Like if you buy a Toyota, somehow you're going to get this great feeling in your life. Uh, or maybe this one here from another car company, Buick. It makes you feel like the man you are. I love that one. Like somehow if you buy a Buick, you're finally going to be a man or something. Um, Coke. We all probably seen this one before. Open happiness, right? You drink a Coke, your life is going to be happy. Uh, or, or there's Xbox. I really like this one too. Power your dreams. Um, so if you buy an Xbox, all your dreams are going to come true. Um, or this one here from Men's Warehouse. You're going to like the way you look, I guarantee it. So it doesn't matter what you look like before you wear the suit. Once you put it on, everything is going to be better, right? Um, and my personal favorite is the slap chop. Um, you're going to be in a great mood all day because you're going to be slapping your troubles away with the slap chop. Uh, or you're going to have an exciting life now. So if you're looking for an exciting life, this is the thing to buy. Um, so like I said, in one form or another, we get, uh, Forbes tells us that we're seeing about 4,000 or 10, up to 10,000 ads like this every day. Uh, have you ever stopped to think about how incredible that is? So if I'm like most people in North America, then every day I'm seeing at least 4,000 messages telling me to focus on something from this world. As a Christian, this should be alarming, I think. 
We've been talking about our mission this year, um, to go out and to spread the gospel of Jesus, right? We've been talking about how important this is for us to do, but yet there's 4,000 reasons per day for us to think about something different. There are 4,000 opportunities every day for us to chase after a different goal. The reason that there are so many ads, I think, in this world every day is because, well, ads work, and most companies have figured that out. Many of the ads we see are different, but they all kind of boil down to one simple idea. And I think it's, it's something like this. Your life could be better, and here's how. But is this really true? And what does the Bible have to say about all this? As Christians, does it make sense that we should be trying to find a sense of fulfillment in the world around us? Fortunately for us, God gives us a fresh perspective in his word, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. In Philippians 4, in Philippians 4, verse 10, God reveals something to us that should cause us to completely reevaluate how we view those 4,000 ads every day. Paul is speaking to us in this verse here, and he says that, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So what does it mean to be content? Well, in Holman's Bible uh, Illustrated Dictionary, it says that contentment is defined as internal satisfaction which does not demand changes in external circumstances. So Paul had found this sense of satisfaction, no matter what he was going through in his life. He had found the secret to being at ease with whatever things were, uh, with whatever way things were in his life, in the easy and in the difficult situations. And this morning we're going to look at what allowed Paul to get to that place in his life, to be content in any situation. We're going to talk about uh, why we also need to be content and then apply this to our lives by talking about what we can do to find contentment today. So let's get started. We all have a desire to be content, but the problem is that many of us are looking for the answer to that desire in the wrong place. We're looking to the world around us to fill us up and make us feel satisfied when the truth is that the world could never give us what we really need. There's a lot of evidence to show that the world is the wrong place to look for contentment. Uh, here is some recent information from Stats Canada on the debt-to-disposable income ratio for us Canadians. You notice a trend here? Um, we can see that over the last two decades, Canadians uh, continue to take on more and more debt relative to their disposable income. Now, maybe there's a lot of reasons for that, but certainly one of the main drivers is that we believe that more stuff will make us happier and we're willing to go into debt for it. If it's true that more stuff is going to make us happier, then we should expect that over time, as we acquire more things, our level of happiness will also go up along with this graph. But the data shows us that this just isn't true. I have another chart here, and this data is from the U.S., not Canada, but I think we can still draw a similar conclusion here. The blue line shows the reported level of happiness uh, for people in the United States over, over time since 1946. And as you can see from the graph, between 1946 and 2008, there really wasn't much of a change in the level of reported happiness, even though uh, we've, we have so much more stuff in our lives today than we did 70 years ago. So if we're looking for contentment, we're not going to find it by chasing after the things that the world has to offer. I know many of us probably have something in our minds right now that we think is going to make us happy. It's a natural thing. 
You know, when I get that new phone, I'm, I'm finally going to be happy. Or when I finally build my dream house, everything is going to be great. Or maybe when I trade in my car for a new one, things are going to be so much better for me. Or maybe, you know, when I get those season tickets, everything's going to be awesome. Or if I land that promotion, I'll be set for life. But the truth is, though, that none of these things can bring us contentment. They can never give us the true joy that lasts. And we know this because the Bible tells us so. It says in Ecclesiastes 5 that whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. The reason that the things of this world can never bring us contentment and and fulfillment is because everything that it offers to us is meaningless. So if there's a secret to being intense, we've got to find it outside of what this world has to offer. There must be another source. And thankfully, the Bible tells us exactly what that source is. The scriptures tell us what we really need to fill us, to satisfy us, and to bring us true contentment. The scriptures teach us how we can be free from this vicious cycle of chasing after more and more and more, only to find that we're never truly filled up. In verse 6 of our text this morning, uh, I guess we had a bit of a miscommunication because we read chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, but it's it's chapter 6 we're in. Uh, it says this in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So the Greek word for godliness uh, means an awesome respect accorded to God. And just before this verse here that we just looked at, Paul discusses some false teachers who thought that they could find their relationship with God to get rich. He says in verse, uh, he says in verse 4 that they are conceited and understand nothing And then in verse 5, he said that these people think that godliness is a means of financial gain. So these people thought that if they tried to have a relationship where they respected God with their life, that they would get rich. Uh, So Paul (laughs) points out how wrong that is, and he says that it's actually godliness with contentment that is great gain. The term used for great gain in this verse is a reference to money or financial gain. And so it's, it's kind of a play on words that Paul is making here. And after studying this passage, I thought about making the title of the sermon, you know, uh, How to Get Rich or something like that, but I thought it might be too cheeky. Um, but the truth really is, though, that Paul is speaking in those terms here in verse 6. What he's essentially saying is that, that the riches we look for in the world will never really satisfy us, but what will really satisfy us and truly make us rich is living a life that is devoted to God and to looking to Him for everything that we need. Maybe the best way to sort of summarize this is by looking at what Paul had to say about what he considered the secret to his contentment uh, from Philippians 4.11-13, where where he says, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So we see here that the secret Paul had for being content in any situation was to stop looking for contentment from the situation and instead making the source of his contentment his relationship with Jesus. Paul discovered a lie that many people still believe is a truth. 
The lie that says we just need that one more thing from this world to make us feel complete and fulfilled. He understood that this world was the wrong source to go to for looking for what we needed. He had already found the right source, and that source was Jesus Christ. And it's really no different for us today. The best way to feel rich is to stop trying to use stuff. Uh, so, sorry, the best way to feel rich is to stop trying to make ourselves feel rich with money. The best way to feel like you have all that you need is to stop trying to use stuff to fill your needs. The best way to experience the great gain that uh, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6 is uh, is to experience this great gain that we all crave by looking out elsewhere other than the world for it. Paul says that when we dedicate ourselves to God, when we can make our lives all about serving Him, and when we realize that He's looking after us, we can be content no matter how much or how little we have. When our, our desires for the things of this world are replaced with a greater desire for more of Jesus, And when we rank Jesus so high above everything else that we can say, no matter what happens in my life, Jesus is enough. He is all I need. It's then that we'll become truly rich because we're going to realize that in Christ, we've already have everything that matters. But this is an uphill battle, right? Our human nature still wants us to pursue contentment from the world around us. It's a lot like an addiction in that way, I think. You know, an addict may be able to understand in their mind that the drug that they're taking is never going to get them more than a temporary high, but they can't bring themselves to quit, no matter how much destruction it's doing to their lives. They need to chase their next fix. We can be addicted to many things in this life as well, right? Money, cars, um, stuff, entertainment, careers, travel, uh, etc., if that thing has become a source of life to us, if we build our lives on it, if we find our purpose in it, if it becomes our motivation for getting out of bed in the morning, something's very wrong. There's a famous study that was uh, conducted by the American Psychological Association. Uh, The name of the study was called Lottery Winners and Accident Victims. Is Happiness Relative? This is a really old study. It was done way back in uh, 1978. But the results are so amazing that the study is actually still referenced today in modern psychology. The study was conducted by Northwestern University in Illinois and also the University of Massachusetts. They looked at 22 lottery winners, like major lottery winners, big sums of money. And then they looked at 29 accident victims who, it wasn't just a small accident, they were actually all paralyzed because of the result of their accident. And they studied these people and they studied their level of happiness. And the purpose of the study was to try and discover the answer to this question. If the major upswings or setbacks in people's lives really affected a person's level of happiness in the long run. Now, of course, in the short term, it it would affect them, but they were looking at the long term results. So basically what they did was to wait until the initial shock of the change in their life, whether good or bad, had passed. So they usually waited about six months or a year. And then they asked each group of people how much pleasure they experienced in their lives from doing some really basic things that we all do every day, Uh, like talking to a friend, watching TV, eating breakfast, hearing a joke or a compliment, reading a magazine, etc., things like that. The results were pretty remarkable, and and here they are on the screen. Uh, It says that the lottery winners actually reported the least amount of pleasure 
followed by the accident victims and then the control group, which they also had. What I, I think is maybe the most remarkable about all this is not necessarily the order of, of who is the most happy or most experiences the most pleasure, but actually how close they all are to each other, despite the drastic differences in each of their living circumstances. Now, this data suggests that winning the lottery will certainly not make us happier in the long run, but it also suggests that the circumstances we go through in, less, in this life, whether good or bad, well, they don't really make much of a difference in the long term for how happy we are or how content we are in our lives. So if contentment isn't a result of, of the things that are going on in our living situation, then where do we go to find contentment? There must be another place that we can find it. It must be somewhere else. And I think the answer to that is uh, is found in our text here. Again, and I'll read this. I'll read this here for us all. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I want us to notice a warning here. Uh, The Bible says that trying to amass riches in this world is a very bad idea. It says that running after riches will eventually uh, lead us into temptation. It will lead us into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that will eventually ruin and destroy us. This is a strong warning, right? It isn't just that we'll never find contentment with the, with the things of this world. The risk for us in chasing after the things of this world is much, much higher than that. I want us to focus on a, for a minute here on the, uh, the image of the snare that's used here in verse 9. Uh, most of us are probably not rabbit hunters. Uh, I think we've sort of, our society's progressed a bit. But... Um, we, and, and so we might not know what a snare is. So I, I got a picture here and I actually brought along a little example here too. Um, I think it's worth talking about this because of how well it describes the situation that's being discussed in the verse here. A snare is like a very simple device, right? It's just a wire or a cord. And then on one end here, there's a knot or a, a locking mechanism of some sort. And you set this up on a trail. And the basic principle is that an animal will run and they'll enter the loop like my hand goes in here. And then they keep running. And as they run away, the snare kind of just tightens up a little bit. And snares are really effective at capturing animals because the harder the animal tries to escape, the tighter and tighter the snare wraps around their body, let's just say. Um, So the more they strive for freedom the more they can't get away. And so it's, it's, very, it's a very powerful image for us in this verse because it, it, it describes a lot about what it's like to be caught in a snare of this world. <clears throat> the harder we strive for the things of this world, the more we lose focus on the things of God. We may think that if we just try a little bit harder to get away, that we'll find what we're looking for in the world somewhere. But the reality is that we'll just keep plunging ourselves into ruin and destruction like it talks about in 1 Timothy. So hopefully that helps clarify a little bit of what a snare is and hopefully it makes it clear 
why we need to strive for our contentment in Jesus instead of the world around us. We can't get what we truly need from the world, no matter how attractive it might seem to us. We can't get it, uh, but we can get it from Jesus. Sorry. In John 14:27, he promises to give his followers something that the world could never give, and he says this in, in uh, yeah, John 14:27, "Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid." So, First Timothy tells us that the pursuits of this world will bring us harm, ruin, destruction, evil, grief. But Jesus says that if we pursue him instead, he will give us peace. And that he will free us from our troubles and extinguish our fears. Church, we need to take him up on this offer. We need to pursue the true riches that come from living a godly life. When we put, uh, when we put our full trust in Jesus... Understanding that he knows what's best for us, we can be content with a whole lot or with very little. Because we know it's not what we have in this world that matters. It's our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So I hope we've established that we need to stop looking to this world for satisfaction and fulfillment. And instead, find the source of our contentment in Christ. But how do we do that? How do we go about changing the source of our contentment from this world to our God? The answer to that lies in our text as well. In verse 7, it says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. I think the best way for us to see the things of this world around us for what they really are is to get out our eternal lens, uh, to get out our eternal focus, and start thinking about our lives in the span of eternity. The Scriptures help us to do that as well, and I really like this verse here from Psalm 39. Uh, and I'm reading from the NLT here. It says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows, and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. I think this passage reminds us of how short our lives are and how senseless it is for us to store up treasures here on earth. When we remember that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it when we go, it should cause us to focus on our eternity instead of the here and now. Thinking with an eternal perspective will cause us to see the distractions of this world for what they really are and help us to live our lives with an eternal focus and eternal perspective. Another great passage that helps us see it this way also comes from, uh, uh, it comes from Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, where Paul says, I have told you before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Here's another very strong warning for us, right, from the scriptures and and, and it tells us where our focus needs to be, or rather, um, where we belong. 
The Bible says that we are citizens of heaven, not this earth. If this world is not our home, then there's no reason to find our fulfillment here. The warning that, uh, the warning is that living a life based on worldly things actually makes us enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies. We need to take our focus off of our appetite for worldly things and instead focus on our citizenship in heaven and pursue the work that the Lord has given us to do. Uh, to help us see this, uh, see how quickly and easily we can lose our eternal focus, I want to look at an example from Scripture. Um, and, and many of us will know this story from uh, the story of King David and, and Bathsheba from Second Samuel. I'm not going to read the whole thing just to try to keep our time as short as I can, but uh, I'm going to highlight a few verses here so you can follow along. Uh, I'll start in Second Samuel 11, verse 2. It says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came, and he slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent Uh, So David sent this word to Joab, and now Joab was the commander of the army where Uriah was fighting. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent David, uh, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, of course, we know that David was hoping that Uriah would do a lot more than just wash his feet when he went to be home with his wife. But Uriah didn't go home. His conscience wouldn't allow him to go home and be with his wife when he knew that his fellow soldiers were all separated from their wives and their families at war. So David's first attempt to cover his tracks failed. And so he thought he might try again. And so we pick up the story in verse 12. It says, Uh, Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah returned, uh, sorry, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's instruction, uh, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. By the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he didn't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. I think it's worth pointing out uh, that David already had six wives at this time that he did this terrible thing. I mean, that should be proof enough to us right there that searching for fulfillment in this world is never enough because Enough is never enough to make us feel content. This example from David's life is excellent for our lesson today because it follows the pattern from 1 Timothy Timothy perfectly. David believed the lie that he needed this worldly thing and he needed to pursue it to find happiness. And then he fell into the snare that we talked about earlier. The harder he tried to find his answer in the world, the further this pursuit dragged him away from God. He resorted to many senseless and harmful desires like taking advantage of an innocent woman, lying, going into drunkenness, and even murdering as he went after the pleasures of his world, of this world. 
David's pursuit pursuit eventually plunged him into ruin and into destruction. And he pierced himself with many griefs or many pangs, like it says in the ESV. Maybe we're not in the same situation today that David was in, but the truth is that any time we find our purpose outside of our relationship with God, we're going to find ourselves on the same dangerous path. David was tempted by something that the world had to offer, and he lost his eternal focus. He lost his spiritual lenses. David was known as a man who was after God's own heart. He usually understood that God was all he needed, but this time he lost that focus. He believed the lie that something from this world would make him feel content and fulfilled. And this is a cautionary tale for all of us. Even if our faith is strong, we're not immune to falling into these kinds of snares that are in the world. So the best way to experience this sense of fulfillment that many are striving to find in this life is ironically to stop looking for it in this life. Paul says that when we dedicate ourselves to God, we can be content no matter how much or how little we have because we'll realize that with Him, we already have everything we need. Now, like most things in Scripture, this is easy to say but harder to do. And, we, uh, and, and so life gets in the way and life gets complicated, right? I mean, what happens when the doctor tells you that you have cancer? Should we just say, I'm content with Jesus, I don't need a treatment plan? Or maybe your boss offers you a promotion. Are you supposed to say, well, thanks, but I have Jesus, so I don't need a better job? Or maybe your car is breaking down and you can't get to work. So should we say, you know, I have Jesus in my life, I don't need to fix my car? Now, first of all, I don't think it's ever a wrong thing for someone to give up something for the Lord. If you believe that a promotion is a bad idea for your spiritual walk, then being content with what God has already given you is probably the right answer. If your car is making you feel distracted in your ability to to serve God with your life, then maybe the right thing to do is to let it go. But we need to be balanced about this. Does being content with Christ mean that we have to give up on any type of progress in our lives? I'd like us to look at a few examples from Scripture to help us answer this question. Uh, And in the chapter we're studying right now in 1 Timothy 6, if we go back one chapter before that, uh, we can see here an example in 1 Timothy 5.23 where Paul was writing to Timothy and telling him, uh, telling him this here, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So Timothy had stomach issues and drinking some wine helped him to deal with that. I think this example shows us uh, that living a life of contentment doesn't mean that we give up on trying to take care of ourselves and also the people around us in our lives. It doesn't mean that we forget about our health. Timothy had an opportunity to to better his health here, and Paul encouraged him to take that. Another example comes from Paul as well when he's writing to the the church in Corinth. Uh, He says in in verse 20 of chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians that each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So, we see here more wisdom uh, for us to try and figure out how we balance this idea of progress in our lives with contentment. 
Some of these new Christians that Paul was writing to were were wondering what they should do if they were in a marriage where their spouse didn't believe, or they were wondering how they should handle uh, being in slavery to a master, if they should break free from that slavery. Paul says here that it would be a good idea for a slave to gain their freedom if they have an opportunity. This helps us to see that practicing contentment doesn't mean that we need to stay in difficult living conditions. If we have an opportunity to make a positive change, we should go for that. And so one final example uh, comes from the, the life of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And if you, if you don't remember, Nehemiah was uh, one of the, the people that helped rebuild Jerusalem uh, after, after the exile. And he's speaking here in this, in this chapter 5, verse 14, when he says, Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Atraxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them in addition to their food and wine. Their, Their assistants also lorded it over them, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. So I think this scripture that we see in, in Nehemiah, and by the way, he started out as a cupbearer. You know, he had worked his way up to being a governor, and he was put in charge of rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. We can see from this passage that Nehemiah was a man who followed God. He wasn't living for the things of this world. And we can see that in, in verse 15 here, where it says that he didn't take advantage of the people under his authority, like the other governors had done before him. Uh, And he says that he didn't do it out of reverence for God. Nehemiah gives us a great example here of how to progress in your career without chasing after the things of this world. So we're supposed to be content in any situation, right? So why then is it okay for the followers of God to change their situations in all three of these circumstances we just looked at? Is there a common theme here uh, in all these cases that we can learn from? I think the thing that ties all three of them together is the answer to this one simple question. Why? Why was it okay for Timothy to pursue better health? Why was it okay for a slave to pursue better living conditions? Why was it okay for Nehemiah to take the big promotion? I think the answer is that it was okay in all three of these cases because the decision was made ultimately not so that they could pursue the things of this life, but instead so that they could serve God better more fully. And therein lies the principle for all of us to consider when we're making these types of decisions in our lives. When we're faced with a choice to be content with what we already have or to make progress, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why am I pursuing this? Is it to chase the world or to chase after God? And maybe that's the reason why Philippians 2, 3 warns us to do nothing, nothing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So will improving your health allow you to serve Christ better and do more for him? If the answer is yes, then seek better health. Would better living circumstances allow you to do more for Christ? If yes, then work towards those, but do not let the ends become the mean. Or sorry, do not let the means become the end. In our service to him, we may imagine that if certain things in our lives change, we would be able to serve him more fully. If that's the case, I believe it's good for us to pray about those things and to pursue those things. But don't be fooled. 
Because we are deceitful creatures. It's so easy for us to pretend that we're doing things for God when really it's just all about us. We're so good at that that sometimes I think we can even fool ourselves. We must scrutinize our motives carefully and on a regular basis. We have to ask ourselves why. So we've been talking a lot about contentment this morning. As humans, we all want to feel content. But the Bible teaches us that there's really only one source that we can go to for true contentment. The pursuit of this, uh, this life and the riches of this life is like a snare. The harder we try to find the things that we want in the world to make us feel content, the tighter its hold becomes on us because the world is the wrong source. But we can find peace in Christ. The Bible teaches us that if we want to focus on Christ for our source of contentment, we first need to look at our lives here on earth with an eternal perspective. We remind ourselves of the brevity of our life here on earth and how this world is really not our home. When we do that, we'll begin to see the things of this life for what they really are. The Bible says that contentment in Christ doesn't mean that we give up on progress, though. On the contrary, I think a life where we find our contentment in serving God should push us to make progress. But the type of progress that we strive for shouldn't be the progress, uh, should be the progress that allows for us to be more useful to God, to be able to better accomplish His mission here on earth. Progress is good. But we need to focus on progress for God's kingdom, not our own kingdom here on earth. So maybe you've realized this morning that you're caught up in the the snare of this world. Maybe you've lost your focus and you're sick of looking for what the, uh, you're sick of looking for something from the world that it just can't give to you. If you want to talk about that or pray about that, please come and see me after or, 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 or reach out to me. Send me a text, a call, an email. Or if you're a Christian, maybe you want to know more about how Jesus is different than anything else that this world has to offer. We see 4,000 ads a day, right? And many of them make promises that they just can't keep. But Jesus keeps his promises. I promise you that. Um, he says that he has something to give us that the world can never give. And the world can never take away either. Through him and only through him, we can have our sins forgiven and be in that kind of a relationship with God where we find our true contentment. A relationship that means so much to us that it doesn't matter how much or how little we have because in this life, if we have Jesus, if we have a relationship with him, we already have everything we could ever need. If that sounds like something you need in your life, please reach out to me and we can talk more about that as well. The song we're going to end off today on is called I Am Resolved. This is a song about making a decision to turn our backs on the things of this world and instead to set our sights on something greater and higher. This song reminds us as Christians that we need to hasten to him. Or today in our words we might say that we might need to run to him. And we run to him today because he sets us free and he makes us glad. He, sets a, he makes us glad because we know in Him that we will have everything that we need. And He makes us free from the snare of this world that we talked about so that we can pursue true contentment in Him. Thank you for your time.